This is Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Primal Screen is about movies, from the ones on the big screen to the ones you stream. Hope you enjoy the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. And welcome to Primal Screen, a show and podcast all about screen culture, from movies on the big screen to whatever it is you're streaming. We're broadcasting tonight from the Triple R Studios on the stolen lands of the Kulin Nation. This is and always will be Aboriginal land. I'm your host, Flick Ford, and I've got the wonderful Cerise Howard joining me in the studio tonight. Hello, Cerise. Hi, I'm wonderful. <laughs> you are wonderful. You heard it here first and twice, folks. <laughs> Hot off the press. Yeah. On tonight's show, we are going to review Eva Vitya's uh, documentary about the life of author Patricia Highsmith, whose work has led to countless screen adaptations from Strangers on a Train to last year's Deep Water. Then the documentary comes out on streaming service DocPlay this Thursday. We'll also discuss an upcoming screening of Chantal Ackerman's 1975 masterpiece, uh, drumroll, Cerise. Oh, I'm <laughs> to pronounce it, am I? Uh, Jean Dillman, 23 Cri de Commerce, 1420 Bruxelles. Wonderful. And that will be screening at the Capitol. Um, now, the film took number one spot on last year's BFI Best Films Ever Made list. Uh, disappointingly, but perhaps not surprisingly, it was the first time in uh, the post 70-year history that a film by a female filmmaker took the top spot. And Cerise, you'll be presenting an introduction before the screening. So tonight we'll talk a little bit more about the poll and also the significance of Ackerman's uh, work more broadly. Um, and we finish up the hour with horror maestro Ari Aster's first foray into something a little looser, uh, a little more comedic. Bo is Afraid, starring Joaquin Phoenix as the titular Bo. Um, and the film opened in cinemas last week. Patricia Highsmith's work is one of the most adapted to screen. I think there are about more than probably two dozen films that are adapted from her writing, from Strangers on a Train, uh, the various iterations of psychopathic killer Tom Ripley, the award-winning Carol with Kate Blanchett and Rooney Mara, and more recently Adrian Lynn's take on Deep Water from last year starring Ben Affleck and Anna de Armas. Now, in a recent documentary by Swiss filmmaker Eva Vitya, uh, Highsmith herself is the subject. Loving Highsmith uh, traces the life and various love affairs of Highsmith. It also touches upon many of the screen adaptations to come from her work and how her cap- characters have captured aspects of her own lived experience. Um, the documentary is going to be released on streaming platform DocPlay this Thursday. Cerise, before we get into the specifics of Vitya's film, um, let's first discuss Highsmith as a, as, a, as a character, as a person. She, she was a rather complicated woman, full of lots of contradictions. Um, firstly, she was a lesbian who published under the pseudonym Claire Morgan for fear of being outed, but she's also been described as a misogynist. And I read one account when she described being repelled by the idea of women reading in libraries while they were menstruating, which I thought was just insane. You kind of couldn't make it up. <laughs> no, that, that's pretty odd, isn't it? <laughs> it yeah. really is. 
And and secondly, although two of her greatest love affairs were with Jewish women, uh, she called herself, quote, a Jew hater and made several horrifically anti-Semitic statements throughout her long career. Um, what's What are your... Yeah, what are your thoughts on Highsmith? Well, gosh, I mean, I've, I, this documentary showed me footage I'd never before seen. In mm. fact, I realised I didn't even know what she looked like. I hadn't seen footage of her before. She's quite striking, isn't she? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I knew a little of her biography and I certainly knew of her reputation for uh, having put some problematic uh, statements out into the, the universe. Um I didn't know a tremendous amount about her, really. So, so every now and again, there'd be another notable adaptation of her work. And I go, oh, Patricia Highsmith. I really mm. should learn something more about her sometime <laughs> or read some of the actual source materials. I've never read any of her novels, but I have seen quite a number of adaptations. Yeah. Though I, though I didn't clock that. Um, was it Deep Water? Uh, yeah, Deep Water. That yeah. came out last year. It was one that went straight, at least in Australia, it went straight on to streaming i'm trying to remember what platform it was on i can't remember off the top of my head um is it not so great or i i feel like that was perhaps i'm I'm not too sure i haven't i haven't seen it myself um i think i feel like now there is just a trend for things to just be on streaming services because that's where the funding is coming from so it's possibly what happened there uh but yeah i think the reason why highsmith as a character and particularly Loving Highsmith documentary will be of great interest to many cinephiles is the fact that she did have this, um, you know, one of the most adaptable um, legacies of, mm. of, 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 sorry, adaptable, um, what am adapted. I trying to say? Adapted. Yeah. <laughs> of her original work. And and the fact that it lends itself so well to the screen um, is really quite exceptional. I feel like the film does a really excellent job of capturing, um, touching upon little segments from that and connecting it up with this memoir. Um, what were your thoughts on Vichia's doco? Well, I, um, it, it seems that a lot of it, wouldn't, I don't think the film would even have come into being if it weren't for the filmmaker having access to some archival materials that were previously very little accessed. And, and this is her, these diaries of Highsmith's were incorporated. They're even part of the, the fabric of this film in a way in that they're breathed into animated life. The words mm. appear on the page in a scribble that on the screen I watched this on at home was just a little hard for me to actually read. Mm. Fortunately, Gwendolyn Christie was on hand to <laughs> give voice to Patricia yes. Highsmith. And um, and, and, and just, I love Gwendolyn Christie. Oh, she's fantastic, isn't she? And and I think that she was very well voice cast. I, um, I understand that Vitya didn't actually know that, didn't recognise um, Gwendolyn Christie's voice initially when she selected her. But I also another kind of fact you mentioned before that these diaries are used throughout the documentary. Um, they are visually presented on the screen, which I thought was actually really beautifully done, quite a simple. It's a tone that follows throughout the film. Uh, and it is, you know, Highsmith's own writing. I think they tidied it up slightly. So I thought that was a really lovely touch. It is a nice touch. And uh, I just wish my vision was better and screen was bigger (laughs) and it was a little less scribbly. I believe they had finessed it a little because I think the original scribbles were scribblier still. (laughs) Um, It is an interesting documentary because we're we're getting, uh, from the get-go, in its very title, there's some positioning there going on very clearly. yes. Uh, it's it's not, for example, called hating on Patricia Highsmith, <laughs> that terrible misogynist uh, anti-Semite. <laughs> yeah. 
Although I think that title was, um, you know, one of the drafts. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, and she had a very interesting life from what I learned about it, a, a complex life, came from a broken home. They were moving hither and yon and mm-hmm. you know, lots of displacement and lots of failures to fit in, being a real classic outsider. I mean, also, um, I suppose there's some mother issues. That's oh, such a that's such a reductive mother issues. <laughs> but we'll return to those, I'm sure, when we're talking about Ariaster's. Actually, well there's afraid. mother issues throughout this entire <laughs> um, set is. of films that we've Maybe picked that's, on. Maybe that's yeah. what we should have called the theme that's for the tonight: mm. mummy issues. Um, yeah, it's it's. I, I think that um, your point before loving Highsmith, of course, like we said, it's coming from a place. Obviously, uh, it's very clear that Vitya is a fan of Highsmith's work uh, because some of the more uh, extreme elements of Highsmith's character are definitely smoothed over in this documentary. However, I'm not sure that that's necessarily – like obviously you want a very accurate portrayal of someone and and a thorough portrayal. I don't feel like the focus of this documentary is more on her love affairs and her sexual identity, which is really fascinating. I do think there would have been – it could have – pride a bit more into a lot of the misogyny that does seem to surface in her comments. Um, so that's a bit of a shame. But it really beautifully captures and she's able to t- speak to at least two of um, Highsmith's great loves. Mm. I thought that was really, really powerful uh, um, What uh, recounting of their time together and really kind of uh, fascinating insight alongside the diaries. What really helped paint a, a clear idea of the, the the climate, the socio-political climate that you had these affairs in, that there was a time where you were closeted because, mm. I mean, of course you were. It was mm. what you did was illegal, not just <laughs> sinful, um, if you were a gay person, whether a writer or otherwise. And, and that Carol... Uh, eventually adapted into a wonderful film by Todd Haynes. This was her second work of fiction. She had to publish it pseudonymously Mm. and she was so terrified of ever being outed that she didn't write more queer fiction until her very late days, I guess. I think it was her very final book actually and then she died sort of soon after that. Yeah, so that's very sad. Mm. And I think at one point, and I'm fairly sure the the documentary does cover this, her mum did threaten to to out her as Mm. well, which just speaks to the toxicity of that relationship. Yeah, nasty piece of work. Mm, mm. So there were, for me, there were quite a lot of revelations in this because I, I hadn't known much about her. And, and yeah, there's definitely a real power in having those women on screen and speaking direct to camera and to the interviewer, the director. Yeah. Um, and uh, especially the the elder of the two, um, I don't know what was her name. Her, oh, um, I've forgotten as well. It starts with an M. That doesn't help us much. Yeah, I've got M's. <laughs> I, 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 I'm sure I could find first it. First and last name, perhaps M's. Um, but what an interesting person mm. she is too. And she'd written a biography on Highsmith. Yes. Um, yeah. So, um, yeah, that. I mean, I'm very curious to read that now as well. Mm. It's clear that she still held Highsmith in very high regard mm. um, actually yeah. just just as an aside the the side story into some of the lesbian clubs and um 
scenes mm. it was fascinating. Actually, I perhaps would say that's my the thing I enjoyed the most. And there was a real, you know, yes, this story is told in the context of um, women needing to use pseudonyms you know, to publish this material and things like that. And, you know, a lot of these um, relationships played out in, you know, covert circumstances. Um, One of her loves, her great loves, who isn't ever named, is a married woman um, and that affair takes place over several years. Uh, But there was also a lot of joy and wonderful, radical sort of um, pleasure that's that's you get the sense of um i can't recall it's terrible that we can't remember all the names of her lovers there were a lot though but there was one fantastic woman who um she's got that great great the great dress sense you know Mm. i can't remember her name do you remember (laughs) okay we're doing terrible tonight with these names anyway I, i really thought that that was wonderful how we got a sense this dual history um of not just what was happening in the literary scene but but also just how these women moved about and existed in the world and um you know there's one moment in which uh, they talk about a taxi driver dropping yeah, off yeah. a woman mm. <laughs> and you know her getting in trouble because you know not meant to know where these where these hidden clubs are yeah she was told that she wouldn't be welcome there again mm. yeah that was very interesting um and then there's just a, the radical act of not just having published this book the price of salt later known as carol but that it didn't end badly that it mm. wasn't a, a story of uh, people with these sick urges must ultimately be punished because there can be no happiness for them that mm. sort of puritanical thing that was the the stuff of the pulp fiction of mm. the time yeah um so there was a, a, a radical aspect to that really to yeah. dare to put our narrative out there um, in which uh, people who did things that the mainstream of that time, could barely sanction if um, uh, that you know, the, the protagonists weren't punished or weren't mm. you know, brutally, horribly dispatched by the society. Or, mm. and, yeah. and I think that's really one of the strengths of Loving Highsmith is in that uh, detailing of how these cinema stories play out and the the um, the power of seeing these stories played out on screen and the fact that, you know, they're still used today. The fact, you know, there's adaptations last year that are being that have been adapted to screen and TV. Um, you know, there's something in these stories that's obviously capturing and is and has a universality to it. Well, I think that there'd always been a queerness that came mm. through, even when she wasn't concerned with women characters too. I mean, strangers on a train. That dynamic between uh, Farley Granger and um, his name's slipped my mind now to uh, Robert. Robert. Anyway, the, the two who meet on the train, the two strangers, there is such sexual tension between the, mm. Robert Walker, between the pair of them um, and the, the Ripley films. There's some yes. serious undercurrents of homoeroticism oh, there absolutely. and tensions. I actually loved that. The film nerd in me really loved that sort of touching upon the ways in which these screen characters, I mean, maybe it's a bit of an obvious thing, but how the author herself sees is is kind of in these characters and um just that little small compilation of those that that kind of voiceover with um footage of matt damon in the role of of um, mr ripley um of tom ripley i just thought how fantastic you could really see like i don't often think of matt damon as particularly feminine Mm. but there was this real beautiful duality 
in watching it on screen and hearing, like, looking for it, I suppose. Yeah, you could see the and- some androgyny mm. there. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Mm. Mm. So I think that cinephiles will get a lot out of this documentary. Yep. I wonder whether fans of Highsmith who are aware of this more complex <laughs> uh, woman may feel a bit let down by a lot of the topics that aren't covered. What are your thoughts, Reese? Um, oh, look, some people might be relieved that mm. some of the nastier stuff isn't really dug deeply into mm. here, that it is ultimately loving Highsmith. And, <laughs> um, yeah, I, I don't know. Um, mm. uh, she was clearly a complex piece of work. And um, um, so I, I don't know. I suppose, uh, well, I, I find this hard to... to to speak to actually because I don't know that I've ever been that attached to a writer in the same way that I get attached to a filmmaker. Mm. Um, well, it's interesting because hmm. the, the source material has been uh, you, adapted so many times by different filmmakers so there are different lenses and so people's connection to Highsmith might be through Carol, it might be through The Talented Miss Ripley, it might be through Strange on the Train, countless other – I'm not going to go through the whole list of, <laughs> you know, 28-odd adaptations – Whatever that connection is, it's so specific to, like you say, the people who've created that. So it skews it slightly. Um, I feel a bit the same. I'm not a massive Highsmith fan. I did, watching this documentary, want to know more about her. I think just the fact that she was creating quite radical figures um, is kind of an interesting thing. And like you say, the, the narrative of Carol some of these more androgynous characters, they're really fascinating. I, I did like the closer lens, um, not knowing much about that. So, yeah, I, I, I think I enjoyed the documentary, I have to say. I think reflecting on it afterwards, maybe there was things that I would have liked to have seen interrogated more, but I don't think that is the focus of Avicius films. No, not this, no. No. no it's loving Highsmith. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and if you would also like to check out Loving Highsmith, it is going to be streaming on Docplay from this Thursday... You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. The Best Films That You've Never Seen is a screening series at Capitol Theatre inspired by the British Film Institute's list of the greatest films of all time. Now, we briefly discussed uh, this list earlier this year, was it, or late last year? I, I think recall. it was just early this year, yeah. I feel. I think it's it's definitely worth returning to. There is a lot to unpack. Um, mm. Notably, as I mentioned before, the fact that the number one film was Chantal Ackerman's arthouse feminist masterpiece, Jean Dillman, uh, do we want to say the whole title? <laughs> no. <laughs> okay, you know the one, Jean Dillman, which is uh, the first time in the poll's 70-year history that a fil- female filmmaker has taken out that top position. Um, and it's also worth noting that it's not just that it was directed by a female. There was also uh, cinematographer Babette Mangolt, uh, editor Patricia Camino, and an almost entirely female crew. I think the, the film crew was like 80% women, which is is really significant for a film made in 1975. In fact, a film made now. It's quite remarkable. Rare, to Rare. say the least. Yes. Yeah. Um, so, Cerise, before we get into that, the poll. So I suppose the biggest news was what got number one. Um, other notable mentions are the fact that there just were more – it was just more diversity across the board in this poll. Yeah. Well, because they canvassed a broader array mm. of people – 
um, still in the field of uh, critics, directors, programmers, I mean, people you expect to have some expertise and deep knowledge mm. of cinema as an art form. Um, and it threw up very different results to what it did 10 years ago, <laughs> the previous time uh, the poll was run. It runs every 10 years. Since mm. The first was in 1952. And I've, uh, yeah, I've, I've had the, the joy of running a class, a, a studio at RMIT these last few years called Canon Fodder, where we look at this list as being sort of the most canonical of all the film canon, you know, the lists of the great films. Uh, at least in the Anglophone world, mm. and we would uh, pick apart what we thought was wrong with it, mm. see how many of the films actually resonated with today's kids, <laughs> and um, and just think, have a good solid think and deep dive into where, where it might all have gone horribly wrong previously and presume that there must have been some people whose voices were not the least bit represented in producing such polls. And I think the BFI had been thinking similar things in the last 10 years and, and greatly did expand mm. the net. Uh, so they brought in a lot more people, um, including clearly a lot more women. Mm. And yeah. lo and behold, wouldn't you know it, it's quite a different list. And have some people out there lost their minds over this? <laughs> um, some principally, let's call them straight white men of probably middle class and upwards of and... Um, Middle age and upwards of. Which we should say do often dominate film criticism. Oh, I hadn't noticed. Is, <laughs> is, yeah, no. yeah yes. yes, not just criticism but mm, filmmaking. Yes. Film, yeah, yes. Yeah, you know, the works. Yes. Yeah, and so, I mean, personally I found it quite entertaining watching some of the Twitter sphere film, yeah. films that just blow up over, you know, notably this poll has, uh, and I quote, Paul Schrader, or possibly slightly misquote, but not grossly, not litigiously. You know, I'm not liable. But he, he did declare that it that the elevation of Jean Dielman to the number one spot would would somehow uh, tarnish that film's legacy because it could only have been elevated because the whole world's gone a bit just too woke oh, or some wow. nonsense. That argument is is so stale. It's, a, it's, it's <laughs> like at least yeah. come up with a, with a, oh, something a bit more unique. It's rather pathetic, isn't it? Mm. And, and rather than thinking maybe the world has changed on account of things that he personally isn't on board with and should get on board with, and, and that there's something wrong with how things are being done now. You know, the penny still, maybe it's dropped finally by now, some months after he was posting nonsense like that on Twitter. But you know, maybe he's realised, actually, maybe we just weren't doing it right before. Because, <laughs> yeah, you know, my students could tell. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of wild, isn't it? When I, I think, yeah, I think it's a good sign when people such, such as, as Paul Schrader get upset um, by by these sorts Suki. of announcements. Let's call it yeah, Suki. Suki. I think it's actually a really great sign because um, I, you know, think of Backlash, that fantastic book by uh, oh gosh, I've blanked on names completely. Flutie, Susan. yes, Flutie, Susan, uh, Susan Flutie, mm. and it's you know the basic premise is that whenever you're making progress in this way, there will always be backlash, and I think the greater the backlash, sometimes the greater the progress we're making, and. Um, yeah, it's it's a great, it's a fantastic list. I mean, um, you still got your faves on there, you know, your Citizen Kane, your Vertigo. <laughs> yeah, he's still represented. Yeah. Taxi Driver's still there. Yeah. He wrote the script for that. It's still a pretty good film. We'll pay that. <laughs> You've got David Lynch's Maholland Drive, uh, Singing in the Rain. I mean, that's a that's a great one. Um, 
there's still a lot of the what you what you mentioned before canonical mm. text, film text that we're used yep. to seeing. Um, it's just exciting that there's just a bit more uh, texture to it. Yeah. This time around. Yeah, all sorts of different levels of diversity, including films made recently, which was something that <laughs> gave the whole thing a very stale <laughs> ambience previously as well. There was mm. uh, 10 years ago, the top 100, um, I do have some stats re- that I can recall because my students often did statistical analyses of, of what was there and what wasn't. 10 years ago, 2012, I think they were all of three films from this century. No since, way. Hey, there's a few more now. <laughs> Isn't that interesting of how we see, um, you know, cinema? Yeah. <laughs> Stuck in the past, it seems. Well, so much. And, and mm. this idea of greatness, I mean, whatever mm. that is, because no one can agree on the criteria in the first place for greatness. But the, this notion that, um, I mean, really, cinema... I mean, even Jean Dalman is 1975, nearly 50 years old. I mean, did cinema really peak nearly 50 years ago? Uh, yeah, be worried. What does this even mean? It's, I mean, the whole thing is quite nonsensical, which just makes it all the more fun when people like Paul Schrader get so sooky about it. Totally. And, I mean, we do see this at the Oscars as well. Oscars is another one that probably needs to be livened up a little. But we see that with a predominance of drama and, mm. and kind of historical fiction. Yeah. Uh, prestige films. Yeah, yeah. Mm. And where are all the musicals? Where are the comedies? I know you and I both are big fans of musicals. So it's a shame that there isn't this kind of acknowledgement of of just different ways of approaching film. Like film is so fluid. It is so – it can be so many things. Uh, And, yeah, it's a shame that (laughs) it it doesn't always get valued. And I think that – that kind of point of value really ties in quite beautifully to um, the film that's going to be screened as part of um, the best films you've never seen series, uh, which is this Thursday. Um, Cerise, you mentioned before that you know you're connected up with RMIT. This is something that's a collaboration between uh, RMIT's Screen and Culture um, departments, I believe. Yeah, between mm. Cinema Studies mm. and um, uh, RMIT Culture. Yeah. Um, uh, part of the sprawling institution that is charged with bringing culture to the masses, not just to the students and the, the faculty and so on, but beyond too. So this is, of course, a public yes, event. Yes, yes. And you're going to be providing a special introduction before the screening. Um, so Jean Dillman is going to be playing as a part of this series. I feel like I didn't get it. I've got a list of it all of the screen films that screened as part of this, but I believe they started with Psycho. No, no, but, but before, oh. during O Week, the yes. orientation yeah. week, there was uh, Spirited Away, the Miyazaki oh, film. sorry, I um, missed that one. Okay. And something else uh, which I can't quite recall, but Psycho um, screened was a, more a couple of weeks back mm. uh, to tie in also with the, there was a horror conference at Acme at around a, a similar time. Um and this this is the next next. I mean, this is the big fish yes. to land. Actually, this is the number one on the pole. It's the greatest <laughs> film of all time, Blake. <laughs> it is. So, at the centre of Eichmann's film, we have the titular Jean, a widowed single mother, played by Delphine Seyrig. Uh, and much of the film details around Jean's daily routines of housework, which is a really interesting and and quite a radical act to capture on film because I was listening to an interview with Ackerman and she in which she, she was explaining that she wanted to give time and to time to and also show on screen 
the tasks that are usually devalued. Mm-hmm. And I think that really that the fact that that is a, a, a key strategy that Ackerman's using in creating this story and presenting it ties in so well with what ends up being quite a radical poll. Um, tell us more about Ackerman before we get into Jean Dillman. Well, um, a Belgian filmmaker. Um, she was really young when she made this film. Uh, it was very early on in her career. Um, it was she was she was twenty five when it premiered at Cannes, occasioning many, many, many walkouts, but also occasioning within a day invitations for the film to screen at another 50 festivals or so. Like it was a sensation as only Khan can provide Mm. uh, great umbrage combined with uh, (laughs) great heralding of another major new talent and proclamations of genius and so on. Mm. And it's interesting that one of the films that she has just dethroned, uh, Citizen Kane, similarly, you know, this wunderkind status attached to that filmmaker's you know, Orson Welles, who was mm. similarly aged at that time, except it's we're much more used to this idea of the, the male genius and a precocious male genius. So there was something um, you know, pretty special and unusual about her, the, the, the fact that her film was, in effect, immediately canonised. There were, there, there were cries for it being the work of a very major filmmaker mm. very immediately for all that some people also left the building or you know, just lost patience with it because... It is a film that will try your patience and very mm. pointedly so. Mm. Uh, she's, just, yeah, I was just yeah. going to say on that as well mm. and that, that trying of patience is largely due to the duration. Yes. Three hours. Yeah, and, and individual shot duration too. Yes, yes, yeah. and the pace and the temporality of this film. I, I, I've, Ackerman, I understand that she was wanting to make sure that um, the whole body was included in the shot mm-hmm. to show these processes in their totality, mm-hmm. not to cut to different edits or anything yeah. like that. And I think that's really interesting. It ties in with a um, seminal essay that would have been written in the same year by, of course, Laura Mulvey, mm-hmm. well-known feminist film theorist. Uh, some of that essay has been challenged over the decades. <laughs> a lot of it has been challenged. Um, but the basic concept is that it, there is something um, – Cinema often presents female bodies in these kind of spliced up mm-hmm. uh, frames that uh, disembody the female body uh, in ways that are presenting the male gaze. Uh, yes. That's a basic. <laughs> yeah. not, not doing so well tonight with uh, Need a Second Coffee, but, uh, but that's basic, yeah, yeah, yeah. the basic gist. Yeah, that, that's pretty central to her thesis of the male gaze, mm. yeah, and, and that this film is counter to such gazes. Um, that it's a, a film that is not going to give you what has been that, say, Mulvey would have considered the conventional visual pleasure, like mm. the whole apparatus is not, as Ackerman has, has employed it, is, is not there to give the male gaze what it might be accustomed mm. to, um, which is a sort of a sadistic enjoyment, in fact, and control, like this was um, control over the the appearance of women and women's bodies in some sort of odd space, like a space that isn't even a real space because it's always so partial. Mm. um, Per this great documentary that I'm sure we're going to see more of soon too, an essay film by Nina Menkes called Brainwash Sex Camera Power, which really unpacks all of what Mulvey was getting at and and the various ways in which these sort of visual, uh, these... Narrative devices 
basically enact power imbalances and mm-hmm. show them and then deliver them. Uh, it's representation and actuality mm. and enablement off screen can be argued. So Ackerman's not interested in that. <laughs> She's interested in having us really sit with her um, Jeanne uh, as she goes about some very mundane chores, goes through some very ritualized, regimented behaviors. Like it's an extraordinary performance from Delphine Sayre because it almost gives the impression of not being a performance, except mm. it is so meticulous. Mm. Um, it's it's the ultimate slow burn because incrementally, as you get more and more used to the rhythms of her life um, over the course of three days, uh, some some things just start to feel a bit off. And, um, yeah... Those that last, that, that get to the end, are, there's quite an impact well, to I be f- had. Yeah. yeah, well, I feel as though modern audiences will not be that shocked by the three hours. There's so many films nowadays that are three hours. It still is a long duration. Yeah, we'll be talking about Bo is Afraid yet too. Yeah, yeah. we've got that still to come up. I, um, I really hope that you get a full house uh, at the Capitol on Tickets Thursday. have already been going gangbusters. Like th- This is a sensation that, I mean, the film hasn't screened often here. I think the last time I'm aware of was a Melbourne Cinematheque yes. screening some years back. Mm. Uh, but that it has, is the film that dethroned uh, Vertigo, that dethroned Citizen Kane, which was top of the perch for years and years. Mm. Um, yeah, it is a real sensation. Of course, people want to see this film now. Yeah. Most people haven't. And I think that whole thing of getting tapping into 70s feminist film mm. and also slow cinema, a uh, yep. wonderful thing to see on the big screen. Art. And actually, just as a, you know, I'm a big fan of slow cinema, but I find the only way I can watch it is on the big screen. Yep. Um, that's the only way to watch it, really. I'm, I'm just. Yeah, I find <laughs> it so much easier too as yes. well. You've surrendered. You have yeah, to. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Um, so listeners can head to the Capitol um, for this screening and which is going to have a very special introduction by the wonderful Cerise. Uh, for more information about the film and also to buy your ticket, you can head to thecapital.tv. You are listening. Is that correct, Cerise? You gave me a funny look. Um, I, no, I think that's correct. It is just an odd <laughs> URL, an odd one, this isn't .tv it? I thing. I double-checked it. But it bears mentioning that tickets yes. are really cheap, like 10 bucks oh, really? for the greatest film of all time. And, and in a very beautiful mm. venue. I love yes. the capital. Uh, so it's a film that's been described as the most bizarre film of the year, a guilt trip to hell, uh, an odyssey to nowhere, big, bold and funny, and three hours of incomprehensible trauma. I am, of course, talking about Ari Aster's latest comedy horror, Bo is Afraid. Cerise, we watched this together yesterday afternoon and Mm. somehow managed to not discuss it immediately afterwards. Uh, What did you make of Ari Aster's Bo is Afraid? Well, I think we did and didn't discuss it. We didn't say anything, but we we both had quite blank looks on our faces, I think. Um, Yeah. Let's just – I'll go back a little. Start with – I I enjoyed uh, Hereditary. I enjoyed Midsummer. Yes, I enjoyed Midsummer more than Hereditary. I feel Mm -hmm. like Hereditary just – I feel like the first half I loved, the second half I did not love. Mm -hmm. I have heard that Astra – uh, this is someone else's comment, doesn't know how to finish a film. Possibly true. Yeah, well, uh, is his problem only with finishing them? I mean, on the, on the basis of 
bone. Uh, should we say what are the? Should we try do a bit of a plot? I mean, uh, you've a guy got... freaks out for three hours. I think that's yeah, that's really good. The gist of yeah. it has some mother issues. Yeah. Um, I mean, the basic concept. He he's living in uh, in a really kind of derelict sort of apartment building. There is a lot of outside dangers. Uh, too many to name, actually. Uh, but then he gets a call that his mother has mm. died and he needs to return home for for the funeral to go ahead. Uh, and that's kind of the, the quest mm. at the centre yes, of Bo is Afraid. Uh, and it just has so many twists and turns. I feel like even if we were to mention what happens in it, it probably wouldn't be a spoiler because you just wouldn't picture it. <laughs> Well, and also uh, we'd be hard-pressed to anyway because quite a bit of it's fairly incoherent. Mm. And there's a particular launch pad where uh, a particular scene, well, it's not even a transition to the, it's not even about this transition, but there is a moment where it fully goes into a completely incoherent, uh, it's had a certain logic for a period and then it seems to abandon it wholesale. I'm not even sure which bit you're talking about because I feel like there's so many times when it does that. Yeah, but also yeah, perhaps from, I mean, from the very get-go, there's, v- there's very little about it that smacks of realism anyway. Even in the environment he lives in, in his apartment block, they, what's immediately outside it and how everyone there is conducting themselves is pretty heightened. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and very theatrical. Even the names. I mean, maybe that's where some of the comedy is coming out. You know, he, he lives above a sex shop called uh, Erectus Ejectus, mm-hmm. from memory, and across from Cheapo Depot, uh, which I, I thought was kind of clever, I have to admit. Yeah. There, d- yeah. I, I don't remember you laughing once in the film. <laughs> like, I, I, I you, you were witness to this. I think I did a bit of a – Yeah, I think I had one of those laughs that isn't quite a laugh where yeah. you're kind of like, hmm, yeah. Like yeah. you kind of appreciate that that is a humorous thing to call a store. Um, the humour uh, – I think this is doing disservice to Todd Salons but kind of reminded me a little bit of that discomfort, discomforting humour of Todd Salons. Mm. You know how a lot of his films have quite a bleak humour? I love Todd Salons, though, so I'm, I don't want to connect up this film necessarily with his filmography. I was trying to get a describe it to a friend. I said similar-esque in the sense of Darren Aronofsky's mother. I thought that opening scene in which there is his apartment is flooded by lots of misfits mm. reminded me of, of course, Jennifer Lawrence fending off lots of unwanted guests. Uh, and the other one I used was maybe tonally similar to, um, oh gosh, I've forgotten the name of it. If you, if you, oh, something about, I'm, I'm thinking of ending things. I'm thinking of ending things. <laughs> yeah, that wasn't an announcement. That's the title. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know that one? No, I haven't uh, seen it. I remember Charlie that, Kaufman. There was yeah. a, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, there's a hint of the Kaufman-esque mm. in this, but uh, not with the same grasp of... Mm, I'm quite, not sure quite what it is. This doesn't hang together. There's, there's, no. Um, it, it it seems like that, you know, I'm sure that people who are a massive fan of this, I'm th- there are people who are giving this five stars all around. The, the reviews are really mixed. It's kind of all over the place. They're either one star or five stars. Uh, so I don't know if we're going to offer people much in the way of, of guidance as to whether they'll love it or hate it because you really could be anywhere on this. I enjoyed some parts of this. And I kind of delighted there's a midsection in which it's um, – there's some beautiful animation. Yeah, that, that uh, is – it is beautiful. It, mm. it does look very nice. Um, what would you say was 
the significance of it? Uh, <laughs> I would say, well, I mean, the question of what's the significance of any element in this film is really up for, for debate because it's not clear. There is not a thorough, there's no through line to any of this. Even the whole thing we mentioned before, mother, mummy issues, that is a, it seems to be a very weakly developed very, point. Um right. I watched the trailer again this morning just to kind of be like, is the trailer presenting something different? The trailer seems to make more sense than the film does, which is insane, you know, comparing a three-minute trailer to a three-hour film. But somehow the trailer is more uh, easier to follow. Yeah. Yeah, there's a bit in the film whereby at different times he takes different drugs, he's prescribed something new at the beginning, has a freak out when he doesn't have the water that he's Mm. supposed to take with it. Later on, a, a girl in the family who's supposed to be his salvation forces some more drugs of some sort on him. We don't know. Is the whole thing a trip? Is he? Is this a, a you know, is he just paranoid? Is Does it even matter? I don't mm. think any of it matters. I, I felt the entire thing was extremely inconsequential because <laughs> there, there wasn't anything to moor it to anything that I could care about. Yeah, and it's a shame because some of the elements are there and I'm just like, you know, I feel like Phoenix, uh, Joaquin Phoenix is a really excellent performer. He's very committed. Could have, yeah, he, he does commit to this film and uh, but he kind of just grunts through this film. They don't really give him that much to work with and I know that's kind of the point. Yeah, look, I, I found it a real slog. Um, I didn't enjoy it. I'm trying to think of elements that could sort of that you would enjoy about this. Some people, I think, may just be enjoy like sort of like you can imagine. I survived. Bo is afraid. T-shirts. Uh, you know uh, that sort of that sort of thing. Um, what are your thoughts? I, I don't, don't know. know. I mean, uh, the cult of A24 is very strong, and mm. I suspect there are some folks who who will watch anything they put out and and feel some sort of attachment to it and um, maybe something that will even bypass critical faculties to some extent. Go, yeah, the new A24 film, Bo is afraid, it's really fucked up. You know? <laughs> sort of dude bro sort of love for the film or something. But I, God, it tested my patience so sorely because mm. it, just couldn't latch on to anything to really care about. It just because it, there wasn't even a, a smidgen of um, mm, con, I, yeah, maybe I do just need a, a hint of conventional causality in there somewhere. Yeah, I, I don't think that's too much to ask, and it's not to say that there couldn't. I mean, there's amazing films that are wonderfully trippy um, absolutely there are so many great drug films um yeah. that we could reference 70s psychedelic cinema just as a genre wonderful um so it's not to say that playing around with form there's anything wrong with it doesn't even need to have have you know these certain beats or things like in fact mixing with that is fantastic but it needs to have something and i think that uh it kind of reminds me of that thing when a director is just given free yeah, reign yeah, yeah. and you realize oh this is why they should not have been <laughs> left alone and people may be confused about whether this is a comedy this is a horror that's the question i've got the most is it a horror is it a comedy i think neither 
Is that would that be accurate? Yeah, neither. And perhaps he's just also not the visionary he might imagine he is. He's not Jodorowsky. He's not David Lynch. Mm. He's not one of those directors who can really take you to the outer limits of some sort of cosmic uh, head uh, head, head fuck. Like, yeah, <laughs> basically, because <laughs> they pull it off, and it just this felt maybe it just felt contrived, and maybe mm. that's what it was. It just didn't have an organic trippiness to it. It was. Just a whole lot of stuff. Yeah, and, and kind of a rather boring vision at times of what it could be, which is a shame when you're mm. like you've gone with – you've really tested the limits of something and still the, it has a very uh, – I don't know. There's a lot of dick jokes. Oh, there's something <sighs> truly risible in the attic. I mean, yes. that, that was just – oh, dearie me. That's not good. Audience, some audiences, a section of, of mm. the community loves this film, Cerise. I, I don't quite get it. Um, <laughs> I'm sure there's going to be, we're going to receive lots of hate mail about our, about this, but I, I don't care. It's, it is a bad film, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, 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 it's, um, yeah. Objectively bad. Categorically, <laughs> objectively. Uh, but if you would like to not take our advice and still continue to see Bo is Afraid. We well, said uh, the trailer was all right. I said the trailer. Yeah. Check out the trailer. Watch the, watch the trailer. Actually, the soundtrack is great. It's got some Mariah Carey on it. Um, listen to the soundtrack. Watch the trailer on repeat. That's all you need to do. Uh, Bo is Afraid is currently playing at... Uh, too also, many cinemas. Too many cinemas yeah. across Australia. <laughs> You've been listening to Primal Screen on Triple R with Cerise Howard and myself, Flickford. On tonight's show, we reviewed Eva Vitiar's Loving Highsmith, which will be streaming on Dockplay from this Thursday. We also discussed the BFI's poll of the greatest films ever made and the number one film in that poll, uh, Chantal Ackerman's Jean. Dillman, sorry about my Australian accent, uh, which is screening at the Capitol also this Thursday as part of the best films you'll never you've never seen series. And the screening also includes an introduction by Cerise, and you can buy your tickets for that event at thecapital.tv. And we finished up the hour with Ari Aster's Wild Trauma Odyssey. Bo is afraid, which is in cinemas now. You can listen back to tonight's episode on the Triple R website rrr.org.au. And while you're there, perhaps can consider subscribing, gifting a subscription or making a donation because it is April Amnesty for another six days here at Triple R and you could win some very cool prizes. Uh, you can also listen back via the Primal Screen podcast edited by the wonderful Luke Clay, who does our socials. Cerise, thanks so much for joining me tonight. Well, thanks for having me, Flick. Thanks for listening to Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. 